Okay, that's definitely working. Good morning again. It's wonderful to be here, and it's good to get into uh, good to get into the scriptures. If that gets too loud, let me know. I don't have a real. My wife thinks I'm half deaf, which deaf, which is why I speak so loud oftentimes. Okay, if you can turn to Romans chapter one, please. I just want to reread a quote that I read the last time I preached on, um, on Romans, uh, which was the last time I preached. It's been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. A better description of Romans is pretty hard to find. Chapters 1 to 5 are that portion in the book of Romans that indeed knocks you down and that will indeed strip you naked. We're at the beginning of that. Romans chapter 1, and we'll just read from 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. From a promise made to a ministry effected, from the calling of God to a separated life, from a sovereign ordination to willing service, from a virgin birth to the resurrection from the dead of the Son of God, from a written hope to the physical manifestation of the way of life for all mankind. And we're only in four verses of the book of Romans. Incredible. Incredible is so much to be said. Last time, what we tried to deal with and we touched on the first two verses, was one of probably the greatest um, controversies within Christianity, and that being the issue about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We touched on that because of verse 1 and its implication. And it doesn't matter how far back you go. You can go to George Whitfield and his arguments with, uh, with John Wesley, Or you can go back a little bit further to James Arminius and his dissenting views against those of the followers of John Calvin. Or you could go to the first few centuries where you've got Augustine and Pelagius. The debates were still the same. What's really interesting is that this also seems to have affected even the very beginning. Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 9 seems to also be dealing with this very same thing. What's also incredible about this, and and I don't want to belittle the debate nor the issue, because it's been rife throughout Christianity, but Paul dealt with it. It's dealt with in Scripture. And the simple reading of the Bible would be able to give you the answers that you need, that both of these positions are clearly evident in Scripture, that they're almost together as one, both the sovereignty of God and free will of man, are both being taught very, very clearly in Scripture. The psalmist says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Psalm 119, 99. 
Isn't that incredible? You can have more understanding than all your teachers because your, the Word of God is what you're focused on. The Word of God is what you're trying to study and believe. And believe the Word of God. The second part that we spoke on was focused on verse 2. Notice that area in parenthesis there, the area in the brackets, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we spoke of its security being in the promise, its antiquity being in being promised afore, its means of transmission by the prophets, and its authority through the Holy Scriptures. With this brief treatment of the first two verses, let's move on and consider the next couple of verses. The human manifestation of the gospel, the virgin birth of the Son of God, and the physical resurrection from the dead. We haven't got that much to go through, have we? We're not going to be touching on the whole, we're only going to be touching briefly on it, but, um, and deal with it more in, in future messages. This morning, my aim and hope is that you might have a greater appreciation of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're focusing on here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the gospel. The gospel is that concerning his son, Jesus Christ. When Paul said that he was separated unto the gospel of God, he tells us exactly what the gospel is in the portion directly after the parenthesis. So when you look at that, have a look again at verse 1 and 2 and then 3. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. If you're looking at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 3, separated unto the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the gospel. What we have here, at the very, very beginning, we've got Jesus Christ our Lord, focused in in Romans chapter 1. But we see also that he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Briefly describing his coming into the world. We also see that he's declared to be the son of God with power according to the resurrection from the dead. Describing the culmination of the gospel. You've got the very beginning of our Lord Jesus Christ and you have the very end of that ministry and the resurrection from the dead. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. This is important for us because what I want to do is I want to do a little bit of a filling of that outline. You've got the outline in the beginning where he was born into the world. And you've got the outline of the end where he was resurrected from the dead. There's a ministry in between that I want you to consider. Also consider that this book was written over 700 years ago. Now, last time when I preached, I made a mistake. I actually said it was... 550 BC. That was wrong. None of you picked it up. You've got to check the people that are preaching. I later ended up working it out. You know, the, uh, the temple was destroyed in 586 BC and Isaiah lived well before, before even the captivity. So it's around about 700 years before Christ that Isaiah was writing. Okay, 700 years before he was born into this world. And I want you to have a look at his ministry and read along with me, please. We're going to read um, from there to the end of chapter 53. And it's important that you get a picture of this. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. 
He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. For a picture of that, you could turn to, not now, but Isaiah 50, verse 6, and see what they actually did to our Lord. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison. And from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. What an incredible portion of scripture. Earlier the Bible goes on and it, and it tells us that for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son was given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What an incredible picture of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, spoken more than 700 years before the manifestation of God on earth. The Gospel is personified in Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, the Son of God, there is no Gospel. The Gospel is more than just good news. It's more than a message. It's more than something we say to people to convince them of the way of salvation. It's more than a tract we leave the lost. The gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, without whom there is no such thing. And without whom we would remain in our sin. 
The gospel is that which we all should be separated to. Now a lot of you have been Christians for a long time. But I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think. I want you to think and consider your life if there was not a son given. That a child was not born. And that the government would be on your shoulders. I want you to think carefully if there was no remission of sins. No reconciliation for iniquity. Please think for a moment that your stripes are not healed. That he had not borne our griefs nor carried our sorrows. That he was not wounded for our transgressions nor bruised for our iniquities. Imagine for a moment that the Lord will lay on us our own iniquity. That God had not made his soul an offering for sin to which we can be justified and that we would have to bear our own iniquities. It's a pretty sombre thought, but I do want you to consider it for a moment because that's where your friends and family are at right now. That's where the people that we love right now stand. Sadly, this is also the way many Christians are living today. They're living as if there is no hope. They're living as if Jesus Christ does not exist. And they're living for this world only. I know it's true. 34 years I lived for myself. Only 29 of those 34 years was I not a Christian. So five years while being born again, I lived completely for myself. So I know that this would describe some of you here. Romans 1 teaches of the downward spiral of living without God. And I want to demonstrate to you the logical end process of life with no hope of eternity. No gospel, no Christ. So let me ask you, how are you going to be reconciled to God? I want you to think of yourself right now not as a Christian. I want you to think, and if you can remember a time when you were not Saved. I want you to think very carefully. How are you going to live your life now in light of, well, in light of no salvation at all? No Christ, no Saviour, no promise, just you and the thought of heaven. How will you accomplish it? Your first thought that you're going to entertain is, am I good enough to go to heaven? If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody out there in the street, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of them think that they're good enough to go to heaven. What's the standard? If they were to think to themselves, like I had one gentleman speak to me a little while ago, look, if I miss out by just that much, if I'm 49.9%, surely God's going to be merciful, won't he? I mean, isn't he a God of love after all, isn't he? If I'm just 49.9%, won't he, won't he let me in? All comes down to one question, doesn't it? What's your definition of good? Well, there's a couple of options that you think about, isn't it? I mean, how do we, how do we determine what's good now? Is it up to me? I ask you a question, is it up to me? Do I determine what is good 
to be able to work out. Let's say 51% gets you in. Let's say 51% and you're in heaven. No problems. All right, that's fine. Great. So what's good? What's the standard? So is it my personal opinion? Can I come up with a standard to be measured? Should I be the one to actually come up with a standard? Can I be trusted? Is this a movable standard? If I'm to come up with my own standard, or what about other people? Can they come up with their standard? And if their standard isn't quite as strict as my standard, can they still get into heaven? You see the problem that we got? It's a problem that you have with life without Christ, life without a saviour, life without looking for anybody else to cover your sin. You have to give an account for yourself. You need to come up with a standard. Now you've just recognised the foolishness of trying to come up with a standard according to yourself. The Bible says there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. What are you going to do now? Society. Morality. Now, morality is a good one, isn't it? Morality is determined by the mores of the people. It's usually society-driven. It's driven by majority opinion. Now, is majority opinion a good standard by which we can measure good? Does the majority of people come up with a conclusion of what is actually good and therefore, is that our standard? Well, let's remember that society is made up of a whole bunch of little me's. So... If society comes up with a standard, the next question is logically, is it changeable? And if it is changeable, then what are the forces that actually change that standard? (sighs) Stuck again. Stuck again. What's good? All right. Getting really frustrated with this. Because, hey, here's another one. Imagine if society was able to come up with a standard and the standards were actually changeable... Which direction are the standards actually moving in? And if they're moving in a downward direction, can I hang on a little bit until it slackens further? Society isn't the one that's actually going to determine if you're going to be good enough to go to heaven. Makes sense? Oh, where am I going to now? Well, now you're moving towards another direction. You're seeking the guidance of worldly wise men. You're going to be looking at books. You're going to be reading other materials. You're going to be reading the philosophers of the past. You're going to be looking at different religions. You're going to be looking at the new age. You're going to be looking at hypnotism. You're going to be looking at everything else for a standard for good. Why? Because you want heaven. In in you, you know that there is something there and you know that you need to be good enough to go to heaven. Inside you, there is this recollection that that's the case. But you've got a problem now because now you're seeking the counsel of worldly wise men. But the problem is they all contradict each other. As one philosophy gets disbanded, another philosophy takes its place and then that one dies away and then another idea comes up and all of a sudden you have the multiplicity of religions that we have out there, which one is true? All of them asking the same question, how good is good enough? So we're looking for a standard, aren't we? What sort of standard are we looking for? We're looking for one that's absolute, aren't we? One that can't change. Do we have it? We do. Where could I find an unchangeable standard, do you think? In God? Where specifically? Anybody, any ideas? Would it be the law? The Ten Commandments? That an unchangeable standard? That was written in stone? Should be unchangeable. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 20, please. Let's just have a quick look at a standard. I want you to understand something. This is the first time the Ten Commandments actually appear in the Scriptures. And God himself is speaking this to the people. The people's understanding of the Ten Commandments did not come from Moses when he walked down the mountain with them on the stone. If you're looking at Cecil B. DeMille for a guidance for truth, you're looking in the wrong direction. God spoke these commandments directly to the people. And that's made clear in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So when you've got time, you can actually read through that to confirm what I'm saying. Remember, don't always believe the person in the pulpit. We can make mistakes. Let's have a look at the first commandment. Look at verse 3 of chapter 20. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The third commandment is found in verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labour and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a day is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. The fifth commandment is found in verse 12. Honour thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's recognised as the first commandment with promise. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. The seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. The eighth, thou shalt not steal. The ninth, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. The tenth, thou shalt not covet. These commandments are those absolute commandments. They're the only ones written in stone. So they're absolute commandments. How'd you go? You sought for a standard of good that's unchangeable, a standard by which if you were to keep all the days of your life, your iniquities would not exist. And you may attain heaven. How have you gone? Young people and older people, honour your father and your mother. How are you doing? How have you done? Don't lose the focus on this. I don't want you to lose the focus on this. And I don't want us to draw this lightly. We're talking seriously about a life without Christ. We're talking about a life that you have no substitutionary atonement. No way possible. God had not promised is the assumption that we're making. And I want you to think about life from that perspective. In this account, there is no remission of sin. In this account, you must personally give an account for your own life. In this account, all people, all people will come to the great white throne judgment. In this account, the only standard of good is that which God alone has ordained. How are you doing? You ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? You ever committed adultery? Oh. Let's look at the clearer explanation that our Lord gives us with adultery. If you've ever looked at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. I won't ask for a show of hands. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Let me make that clear. Have you ever taken the name of the one that gave you life? 
The one that gives you your every breath. The one that gives you the tongue with which you used to blaspheme him. Have you ever taken that name that is a name above all names, that only his word is exalted above it, and brought it right down to the gutter and used it as a swear word? Have you ever done that? Have you always kept the Sabbath day? Have you ever coveted the goods of another or sought that which was not your own and lusted after it or things which you can't afford? Have you ever made anything other than God your first love? A person could do this. A person could do this. My father was seeking for eternal life. He was asking me the questions about our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. He said, one day I want to ask you about what it is that you believe. I want to understand. Then he met a woman. It's taken his heart. He hasn't asked the question again. He's a little bit distracted at the moment. He's married now and they're off on a honeymoon and I don't expect he's going to be asking me the question again for a little while. Until they have their first argument, maybe, might come. But anybody else and anything else can take your heart away from the Lord. If hatred of another man is the explanation of murder, which we have in 1 John, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. If the hatred of another man, in other words, let me explain a little bit clearer, if you believe your life to be better had that individual never existed, it's murder in your own heart, how you doing? Guys, If the law of God is given that I might be able to see my state, I can say with Isaiah, I'm undone. I'm undone. I've broken all of them. I can't can't pick one of these that I haven't already broken. When you look really seriously here, your heart right now, if you're not saved, if you don't know Christ right now, You should be crying for a saviour. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to show you your sin. It's to show you a reflection of where you stand right now. But there is no saviour in this mindset. There is none. But the thing is, when you realise that there is no saviour, you live life apart from Christ, you start putting the idea of heaven and hell far from you. John Bunyan did exactly the same thing. He, he knew that he wasn't there. He put the idea of heaven and hell far from him and lived a life according to himself to please himself. Some of you are living your lives apart from Christ in exactly the same way as the unbelievers. So... This is the final portion of my message. And I want to give you a story. A short story. It's a story that you'll be able to find for yourselves and we'll have a look at it in a minute. When you think to live your life apart from heaven and apart from hell and decide that those things, well, mate, I can't, I can't change it. I can't do anything about it. How are you going to live your life here now? You're going to live your life, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, huh? Might as well kick up your heels now because we've only got a short life and then after this, well, I don't want to think about that. 
But your focus is going to be on here and now, isn't it? It can't be on things of eternity, can it? When you're living apart from Christ, if you're living apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not growing in that relationship with God, you're not focusing on eternity, are you? You're now focusing on here and now. Some of us as Christians still live that way. Maybe not here. Maybe not in this place. Maybe so. Let me tell you a story of a man. It's an earlier time that he knew and he trusted God. He trusted him well. He believed in God and believed completely that God could grant him all things and perform all things. This man was not a simple peasant, nor was he a wealthy businessman. He was not an entrepreneur or factory worker. If he were alive today, he would be considered a philosopher. He would have written many books and perhaps many songs. But he was none of those things. He was once a king. He ruled a nation of people, not just any people, and not just any nation. These were God's own people. A people set apart for himself, a peculiar people, a people whom God loved dearly and wanted the very best for them. To this king, God entrusted the very best of himself. He gave him wisdom, honour and wealth beyond measure. This man is recognised as both the wisest and the wealthiest man that ever lived. Not only that, but this king had a direct two-way relationship with the creator of the universe. Both spoke to one another. And when this king made requests, it was granted. But after much time, the communication between the king and God seemed to be less and less. Though so much was given to the king, and may we say more things that any man could ever desire were of the king's possession, the king's communication with God began to slow. As a result, the king could not find contentment in life and began slowly to experiment and to seek out many other endeavours. No longer communicating with God, he began to commune with his own heart, saying... Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten me, having gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He said in his own heart that he will seek after pleasure. He will give himself to wine to seek after the things sought of by others. It is fair to say that the king, having all things at his disposal, was able to seek after these things more than all people ever could or ever can. More than you or I ever can. There seemed to be nothing out of his reach. You turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, please. I'd like you to consider his own testimony. The testimony of a man who seeks to live life apart from God. Guys, these words, if truly, truly, you're stuck in a place right now where you're seeking the pleasures of this world, there is no better example of one that's done it. And he calls you a fool for trying it. None of us want to be called a fool. 
I was a fool for 30 odd years. Let's have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll go from verse 4 to the end. Please, please listen to his words. Please read them. Please reread them again and again. If you're chasing after the things that he was chasing after, remember how he finishes this. Verse 4. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possession of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for my heart rejoiced in all my labour and this was my portion of all my labour. Then I looked on the works of my hands that my hands had wrought and on the labour that I had laboured to do and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun and I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth a wise man, even as the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous to me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labour which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labour, wherein I have laboured, and wherein I have shewed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labour which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labour is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not laboured therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labour, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath laboured under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labour. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto, more than I. 
There hasn't been a man that's been able to achieve everything that Solomon's achieved. No matter how much you're going to be going after in your own life, no matter how much of this world you're going to be seeking in your own life, he's done more. He's achieved more. No matter how much I tried to do in my life, from the age of 15 years old up until the age of 35, my desire was to be rich and wealthy beyond measure. I had pictures, I had books called The Rob Report. If you've ever seen it, it's about that thick and it's just got houses and boats. Mate, vanity and vexation of spirit leads you to nothing other than frustration. And I didn't even attain those things. Solomon did. Solomon had it all. Everything you think you want in your life, Solomon already had it. All right, motorbikes weren't there. Sorry. Oh, sorry, speedboats didn't exist either. Do you think it matters? Do you think it really matters? How does he conclude? Flip over to chapter 12, please. Let's have a, let's have a look at the end of the message. Over to chapter 12. King Solomon completes his story this way. Interesting, he completes it in the third person, a portion of it. We'll have a look at from verse 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. For making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Are you living life as if there is nothing better? Are you living life as if Christ does not exist? The truth is, He is the Son of God. He is the one that came into this world to save that which was lost. He is the one in whom fullness of life is promised and given. He is the one in whom all joy is to be had. And he is the one whose relationship you need to foster with all your heart. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 deals with an ever-increasing level of depravity. It moves down the scale as soon as you take your eyes off the Lord. I'll give you a little test. Test your heart for yourself. 1,600 years ago, there was a sermon written. Poses an interesting proposal to you. I want you to think about it. God's proposing this proposal. He's putting it on the table for you to accept. I want you to consider it as a genuine deal. I want you to think of it as real. Absolutely 100% real. Okay? And I'll close on this. God says, I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
nothing will be a sin. Nothing will be forgiven, for, uh, forbidden. You will never die. You will never have pain. You will never have sickness. You will never have anything you do not want and always have everything you do want, except for just one thing. You will never see my face. St. Augustine finishes with a question. Did a chill rise in your heart? You will never see my face. That chill is the most precious thing in you. It is the pure love of God. If when I said you will never see my face, if immediately in your mind and heart you went, I don't care about anything else. You've got to be kidding me. If that describes you, if that was exactly how you felt, rejoice. There's no question of your love for the Lord and that you're saved. Rejoice in that. But if your response was, so, or guys, if that was your response, the worst possible position is that you're not saved at all. That right now you stand in a position of condemnation. You're going to have to give an account for your own life. Christ means nothing to you at this point. If that was your position, then that is the scariest position to be in. Or... Perhaps you do know the Lord, but you're not in the right place. The Bible says to separate. Separate ourselves unto the gospel of God. Live knowing Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, within our hearts, dear Lord, we know that we stray. We know, dear God, that we can turn each one to our own way. We know, dear Lord, that from time to time we will slip and we will fall. But we know, dear Lord, that you are the God of the universe. You are the one that died for our sins. Lord, I pray. I pray, dear God, for the people that are here. I pray for each one of us. I pray for those that don't know you. And I ask you, dear Lord, that you will prick their hearts, that you will help them cry out for a saviour. And I pray for those of us, dear Lord, that have strayed so far away from you that we can't even see our own way back. I ask you, dear Lord, that you might give us strength, give us courage to build and foster that relationship with you. As we move through this week, dear Lord, I pray that you will be there as part of our heart, dear Lord, and you'll help us consider you, to read your word, to spend time with you in prayer, to not be as Solomon was, to seek the counsel of our own heart, but to be as the godly do, to seek only your face and your counsel. Your face, dear Lord, is all we desire. And everything else, dear Father, everything else is superficial. To see your face, dear Lord, let us therewith be content. Praise you, dear Lord, and I ask you to bless the remainder of this service. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.